This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me. Today, my guest is BJ Novak, who is on The Office, as you know. And he's also got a new movie out. It's about a podcaster. So I had a lot of questions for him, and he's a blast to talk to. We had a conversation about what it's like to make a movie, as well as what it's like to make everything else he's made. He's got a pretty varied career. He's made TV shows and written children's books and tried his hands at apps. And at the end, uh, BJ and I talked about the downside of the streaming boom. And if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast and you're listening to it right now, you're going to like it. So stick around for the end. But first, I talked to James Ponowozik, the super smart New York Times TV critic. We've had him on before to talk about sort of the intersection of TV and politics. It's been relevant for a while. Uh, We talked about the TV show many of us watched this summer. That would be the January 6th hearings which are a marked departure from the hearings you've seen in the past. We talked about how they work on TV and how they work on social. This also happens to be what I wrote about this week in my Vox.com column, which you can read for free on Vox.com, or you can have it delivered to your inbox. However you want it, we will get it to you. Okay, enough of me talking. Now here's me and James Ponowozik. I'm here with James Ponowozik, the New York Times excellent TV critic, who I love to talk to about TV and politics, which have collided all summer with the January 6th series. Welcome, James. Uh, hey, thanks, Peter. You are a very smart observer about television and politics and how they collide. I wanted to ask you about the January 6th hearings, which you wrote about recently. I'm writing about it, too. So I'm just going to take your ideas and present them as my own. Don't tell anyone. What did you make <laughs> of the of the hearings, which ran for several episodes that are going to start again, apparently, in September? It was the show of the summer. I was, you know, I, I was obviously interested Because of the subject matter, because this is a sort of television that I cover professionally. Um, But I was really not expecting it to be nearly as well-produced and engaging and, you know, dare I say, you know, juicy and, and watchable as it was. Substance aside, and you can't entirely set substance aside with something like this. It was just a really well-executed TV production that delivered in the same way that, you know, any summer television drama or documentary series or reality show needs to. We usually don't say that about congressional hearings. If you've ever had to watch one in the past, you might have been surprised at how incredibly dull and repetitive and sort of depressing they are. They, they don't give you a lot of confidence that Congress is very good at, at anything. Um, what made this compelling television and perhaps good politics? You know, first off, uh, as, as you alluded to, they sort of dispensed with the, the talk, talk, talk. You know, what you're accustomed to when seeing a congressional hearing of any sort is witnesses answering questions into a microphone for hour upon hour. The round robin, you know, of going around the horn of each representative on the committee for five minutes each to ask questions or, or grandstand or whatever. This was television that that was made for a visual medium. 
which made heavy use of file video and graphics and very sharp and tight editing that, you know, sort of communicated a sense of stakes. You know, here's, here's why we're doing this. Here's why it's important. Here's what the threat is now. And that almost in the way of, you know, one of those true crime TV miniseries that we're seeing so many of now kind of started you off in medias res, you know, at the, at the inciting incident, the attack on the Capitol, mm -hmm. and then said, okay, we're going to step back. Every episode, quote unquote, is going to be about a different piece of this. And then it's going to bring you back full circle to the inside of the White House on that day. And, and, and what that does practically is give the viewer a roadmap. I think that this was, without dumbing it down, very conscious in a broadcast sense of always letting the viewer know where they were, where they were going, both in terms of the narrative and even in things like those graphics of the White House, you know, where it would show you, here is where Donald Trump was, here is how far he was from the cameras in the press room. You know, they, they were almost serving the function of that map at the beginning of Game of Thrones, right, where you have this complex story that's taking place across continents. And it's like, we need to let viewers know where Winterfell is in relation yeah. to King's Landing. Do you think this is built for a television audience or do you think it's built for an audience that's going to see clips of it on social or a newscast later on? It's built for many audiences the way that television is today, you know, at least particularly nonfiction television, you know, in the same sense that Stephen Colbert is making a show for the people watching him at 1130, but also for the people watching clips on YouTube the next day or sharing them on Twitter. Mm -hmm. You know, th there was there was definitely a, a consciousness of making a tight, generally two hour broadcast that people, you know, might want to sit down and watch and not feel like they were, you know, completely doing homework. But there was also a lot of consciousness of, you know, the way people the kind of moments that people chatter about and that build buzz and that might be shared. You know, I thought it was really, you know, we, we saw the phenomenon in Thursday night's last, last broadcast uh, where there was that, you know, just <laughs> devastatingly edited cut from uh, 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 Josh Hawley saluting the protesters outside the Capitol and then Josh Hawley running away from the mob within the halls of the Capitol. And that was almost made to be shared on social media. And, and interestingly, you know, even ran just before the committee took a break. I have no idea if this was intentional or not. But, you know, so that people had those 10 minutes to start. And you could see the memes start developing on Twitter uh, while the committee was in break. So, you know, I, I think it was certainly made to be shareable. Yeah, so I was I was listening and watching to much of that hearing, and I missed the Holly moment live, but it didn't matter because it was immediately on my socials for the next day or so. But it had me thinking, like, if the whole point of the hearing, and I don't realize it's not the whole point of the hearing, but if, if the Josh Hawley running through Congress is the breakout moment of, of the hearing, and you can sort of debate whether or not that should be the point of the hearing anyway... Why have a hearing to do it? Why not just send out the clip? Um, everyone's going to have fun with it regardless. Why Why do you need to have the structure of a hearing on live television to create? And that's a pre-taped clip, obviously, to, yeah. to, to propagate a social clip like that. I mean, the hearing is still making an extended and, you know, fairly complicated argument about how here's this terrible thing that happened on January 6th. 
Here's why it happened. Here's why we believe that Donald Trump was in many ways acting consciously to bring this about and try to overturn the election. Uh, what these little clips and viral moments or, you know, really stunning anecdotes and testimony do is they're kind of, you know, the 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 little seeds of it that go out into the world and, you know, they 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 generate a reaction and they either unlock underline or draw attention to the larger product. I mean, you know, in isolation, the Holly clips are, you know, it's it's very funny. It's very ironic, but in isolation, it's just dunking on Josh Hawley. Within the context of the full hearing, you know, it is sort of echoing a larger point of, uh, you know, here is this political party and this political movement that's playing footsie with this, you know, terrifying force. Uh, and, you know, here's them sowing and here's them reaping. Presumably, we won't see this thing replicated again, and because the reason it exists in this format, sort of a, with a with a, a straightforward argument supported by evidence instead of debate among committee members, is the Republicans abdicated the committee. There's two Republicans who are essentially been kicked out of the party uh, for participating, and then the rest of it is Democrats. So, do you think there are other lessons or techniques that will? Do you think we'll see any part of this show up in hearings down the line, or is this a one-off? You're only going to see it in, in 2022 event. I agree that there's kind of a, a perfect storm element of it, you know, particularly the fact that you did not have basically a dissenting half of the committee trying to kick up dust about it and, and derail it. But I certainly think there are bits and pieces of this that I would be surprised if future committees don't try to replicate in some way. You know, uh, simply the, the 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 greater use of video and intercutting video with live narration or questioning, putting video interviews in the bank and then being able to edit them to more sort of dynamically and concisely tell a point. Uh, you know, just the use use of graphics and visuals. All those are things that you could incorporate in future hearings. It's unlikely to be this seamless because, you know, as you say, we're not really used to committees like this, you know, as we saw in the impeachment hearings, all working toward the same goal. Are you worried about uh, a future where someone says, that's a really good technique, I'm going to use it and yeah. warp it to, to evil ends, and I'm also going to show you clips, but they're going to be really misleading. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, we don't, you know, we're still seeing clips. We don't know the full the full extent, but we're 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 putting some some faith in 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 the people we're seeing on television. But presumably, someone could show you deliberately misleading stuff and say, "We this is exactly what we did last year." There's no difference. Absolutely, you know, like on the one hand, I like to you know caution against the idea of sometimes when I say that, oh, they're creating a narrative here, or they're they're editing, and you know, it, it sounds like you know, I'm saying that this is deceitful and it's not inherently deceitful. That's what journalism does. You know, when when you write an article or you put together a documentary, you're not just dumping out your raw notes. You're trying to give them order and form. But any effective means of communication can be used in bad faith. And, you know, yeah, it worries me that somebody's looking at that and thinking, wow, if I get this platform, I could really effectively, you know, clip together, uh, uh, clip together strings of interviews to make the point that I want to make, even if that's contrary to the truth. Sure, there are a few media weapons that are not double-edged. Right. And I guess, yeah, that the counter argument is it's going to happen regardless, and probably you could argue has been happening in various forms 
either way. And we're going to see more of this in September. So maybe we will talk about it again this fall. I'm going to let you start your summer vacation now. James Ponowozik from the New York Times. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Peter. Thanks again to James Ponowozik. In a minute, BJ Novak. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. BJ Novak starred in and wrote for The Office, which you have seen. He's done a bunch of other things, some of those you've seen, and we're going to talk about all of those. But first, I want to talk to him about Vengeance. It's a movie he wrote and directed and starred in that you can see in theaters. Welcome, BJ. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. I made a point of trying to not know anything about Vengeance before I saw the screener. Oh, you made a point. Saw the screener. You made a point. Yes. Oh, oh, sorry, but you did see the screener. I, was I did see the screener. I did. I did see the well, screener. Well, thank you. Great. I, I assumed going in, I knew it was about a podcaster doing a serial-like doc, and I thought it was going to be a satire, and it's not. It's many other things. How would you describe it? Well, it is a lot of, maybe it's a lot of other things, and you have to figure out which is the main thing, in a sense. I, I think of it as a comedy first. Sometimes I call it like, what if one type of Coen Brothers movie turned into the other type of Coen Brothers movie? You know, like the Fargo, you know, observational world sort of offbeat comedy turns into the no country, true, great world. It, yeah, it, it is about a podcaster, even even worse, an aspiring podcaster who um, kind of lives living a shallow life in New York, wants to make a name for himself. We see he's kind of not as complete a guy or happy or, or good a guy as he maybe thinks he is. And he ends up pursuing the story in small town West Texas to sort of make his big name on an NPR type network when he gets pulled in deeper than he thought he would, both emotionally and in terms of a mystery that that turns out to be maybe not just a conspiracy theory. So I could spend the entirety of this podcast talking about how you made a movie about a podcaster. I won't, but I am curious, was it always going to be about a podcaster because you wanted a narcissistic, uh, self-absorbed jackass and that was the best idea or did it move move around? (laughs) The fact that you'd say that shows, yes, there is a sort of self- loathing and judgment that I think all writers have. So I was originally going to have it as a, you know, as a journalist for exactly those reasons. Oh, who's someone who likes to talk more than he likes to listen and thinks he's smarter than he is, but isn't really in the real world. All of those sort of um, tropes that have some truth to them. But um, it was kind of stale. I don't know when I thought of, oh, writer goes in with his notepad and his, you know, and then when podcasting was just kind of starting to break and it just made me smile, it was instantly silly. A guy wants to be a podcaster. Okay, that's a funny dream because it seems so easy and and a little pathetic. Um, yes. Uh, well, look, Go I'm on. a big pod- I'm a big podcast fan. There's a lot of money. I it, it but it seems that way, right? We all uh-huh. feel that. And I don't know. I just thought, okay, well, that gives a little self deprecation and lightness to to the story, to, but otherwise take it seriously. And then you know, as I wrote it, podcasting got bigger and bigger and. It was definitely something when I started writing, I was like, oh, these people in the small town in Texas, 
won't know what a podcast is. Oh, they know. They know now. You know, they they've they never seen a podcast before. No, yeah, they, they, figured they it listen. Out. They listen to Joe Rogan. They you know they have their own podcast. So it it became a whole like new genre to explore. And I just I liked that we hadn't seen that on screen. You know, to see someone taking notes in a notepad is such a cliche. But to see someone kind of awkwardly pointing out a mic, you know, like it's a gun, I thought that was just fresh visually too. Yeah, no, it was great. I, I, I've read about you doing research in West Texas and, and, and getting to know the people. Did you have to do similar immersive work to, to figure out what a podcaster's life was like? Uh, yeah, less because it's more sort of adjacent to my regular life. But um, but yeah, I went to um, went to Pineapple Studios in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and, and spent a day with them learning how to use the equipment. I even sat in on a pitch meeting, which I saw you were walking really... around. With the, you were walking around the Zoom. I noticed that. That was good. Yeah, yeah. A little um, device. Yeah. I sat in on a pitch meeting at Pineapple Studios, and I wonder what those guys still think. I don't know if they sold that pitch. If they didn't, I'm sure it threw them off. They're like, oh, and the guy from the office is just going to be sitting here silently, too. Uh, oh, okay. That's... But they, they were very, very good to show me all that stuff. And I spoke to um, Ira Glass. I spoke to Starly Kine. I spoke to Terry Gross and ended up getting her in the film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I definitely did my homework on that side, too. Is there something about like the podcast voice and sort of, I mean, I mean, you play with it all the time, right? The, the, this is a story about someone, but it's really about me. Right. Cause um, it always idea is, idea that you right? keep, the idea that you keep playing with that, that really appealed to you. Or I mean, did you know that going in that that was going to be the idea? I think that was probably baked into it. I really just thought, you know, sort of the, the comedy version or the, the difficult version of that, where you think you don't want the story to be about you because you're not so great, you know, in, in this guy's case, you know, and Issa Rae's character teases him in the beginning. Oh, this is about you, your mm-hmm. shallowness, your hollowness, your lack of self-awareness, you know, and my character's like, no, 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 it's about blah, 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 blah. But in that famous cliche, every story is really about the person telling it. It is about him. And and that's not, that's not a good story, at least not the way he starts. You know, he's not, um he's not a great guy at the beginning. So this had a, a relatively long gestation period. Was it always going to be a movie? And was it always going to be a movie that you wanted people to see in theaters? It was always going to be a movie. It was not something that I was adamant had to be in theaters. I certainly like the idea because it has these broad Texan landscapes. And, you know, it kind of does feel like a Western. It's just fun. But I wasn't married to it. I'm not one of those purists about film. I watch a lot of things at home. And I think that it's misguided to fetishize any form. The The point of movies when they started, I learned recently, was as a way to show off air conditioning. They invented mm-hmm. air conditioning first, and then they needed something to show. And like, oh, you know, there's moving pictures. So the air conditioning came before the movie. Um, some people romanticize theater. And I think, well, if the if the ancient Greeks had a film camera they never would have done theater you know so i don't believe in romanticizing something just because it has a long tradition on the other hand it's a pretty cool tradition and when focus features i know you you're interested in the business side of it um as well jason blum have you had him on i have yeah so jason's a producer obviously who's always thinking forward and he's like buddy buddy (laughs) that's a good jason blum hear me out i won't do it if you don't want me to it's completely up to you six-part peacock series I'm like, I, I would have written it differently. You know what I mean? Like he's always, and he's like, you, your generation, you, you think it has to be on on the big screen. I'm like, no, I don't. I really don't. I just think this movie, it, it is what it is. I love different forms. This is my first film. I've done other things. I'm not a film purist, but this, this just was a film. 
Jason Blum, for folks who haven't listened to the interview I did with him and haven't read uh, him, don't know that much about him, famous for for horror, um, most notably Get Out, but a million other things. And part of his deal is he makes movies at a price, but then gives them to oftentimes first-time directors like yourself and says, Mm -hmm. you go ahead and do it. And then if it's good, we'll put it in theaters. If not, it'll, it'll stream or DVD. Was that the deal for you? Exactly, yeah. And so I think being in theaters at all, was a win um but then you know then he i think he needed a couple extra bucks and um for this and to do right by me because it did it did go over the blumhouse rule and and he really did me right and got focus features which is also in the universal family to come on as the distributor and help out a little bit which is the best of both worlds because the movie is um is sort of more of like a focus features if you know that brand you know it's not a horror movie so mm-hmm. I got to use all the incredible Blumhouse production team and tricks and then Focus distributed it. Where does a movie like this go over budget? Because from what I can tell, I mean, you've got some well-known actors, but I assume you're not paying them exorbitant fees. And then it's mostly filmed, I think, in New Mexico. It looks beautiful. What, what, where does the cost go up for that? It seems like a small film to make. Oh, sure. But what the small mean? Five, six, ten. I mean, it's just uh-huh. it's all it's all degrees. How many extra days do you need to shoot? Really? It's stuff like that. You know, a car blows up. Oh, we need another day. Oh, we don't have the day. You know, it, it's really time is money. Every day is expensive. But no, this was this was a very cheap film. And that's why Blumhouse took the risk. And, you know, I'm sure you're talking about this. His model is very much like the the VC model or something. You know, these are penny stocks in a sense. You know, mm-hmm. you, take, you take a bet. A lot of the movies fail. But the ones that hit, you make a big return on. So yeah, I just the same, same for the talent as well. Yeah. Well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll yeah. see. I think it's more just I got to make a movie, and that is that is what I wanted. Like I referenced at the beginning, you've done a lot of other stuff. Was there always a I want to make a movie somehow, someday, somewhere in your mind, or was this a thing that came up? Uh, both. I I did want to make a movie, and I also wouldn't have made a movie if I didn't if I didn't have a movie I wanted to make. There's a lot of things I want to do, so. But I, I really did love this this idea, and I really did have the drive to do this. And it was called Vengeance, and um, you know they knew who I was over at Blumhouse, and so okay, Vengeance sounds like a marketable title. So I got some good actors to sign on as we were developing it. So it, it worked. Where I thought it was going to go at first was his, because um, I saw it relatively recently, was the uh, the Blue State guys hunt and kill the Red State people movie that he put out, whose name I can't you saw remember. the hunt. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I thought that's where you were going with this initially, that it was going to be something oh. where it got really, really like over the top and grotesque because I knew it was Blumhouse. It's really not that Blumhouse-y. You know, I, I call yeah. it like the, the adopted Jewish stepchild of the Blumhouse family. You know, I'm at the dinner table. I look different than the others, but uh, he's in the family. <laughs> um, so, you know, every now and then they do an outlier. They did Whiplash, for example. Yep. And so I think this movie is sort of more like it was really a, a labor of love for Cooper Samuelson, one of one of Blum's top execs too, who um, we call him Mr. Julia Borston around. Here. Oh, exactly, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think because Cooper really cared and and Blum trusted me, and we could do it at the budget. I think that combination made this in, and we did add a couple little um, scary moments, sort of as a nod, and and really to make it more of an entertaining movie. But no, it's it's definitely not a horror movie. I spent the last couple of years asking everyone on the show, oh, how did you deal with COVID? And the stories were actually pretty boring. But in your case, you were making the movie and then had to shut down production. Oh, yeah. I got an email from Ashton Kutcher, who's in the movie, two weeks before he was going to shoot a scene. 
And he said, are you still filming due to COVID-19? And I was like, this guy is so up in his ass with this tech world. COVID-19? What the hell? Like, I'd vaguely heard of it. I was like, yeah, we're still filming. Like, I thought he was, like, deep, deep in, in like, you know, hypothetical stuff. And, um, yeah, sure enough, we shut down the day before he was going to film. I was like, we're we're in a red state that is not paying any attention to this. I'm in my bubble filming the movie. I'm talking to people in LA who are like, how's it going? It's getting weird here. I'm like, grow up. Like, And then boom, the whole world shuts down. And we, mm-hmm. we were down for seven months. So how far along were you in the filming? We had shot three out of five weeks. So I think just Please. enough that they couldn't throw the movie away. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Was there a chance of like, you know what? This just isn't going to go. I thought so, yeah. But I thought, honestly, I don't know. I think that that at our budget point, I mean, Jason would know if you have him on. Um, but if it was just one of those interesting speculative things, the movie business, nobody knows anything. But I was, I was thinking, trying to read the tea leaves. Okay, if we had only shot one week, that's it. They throw it away because the cost of spinning it back up in COVID are going to be crazy. If they have most of the movie, they don't want to eat that cost. So I, I just so as you can tell, it, to me, it was just about can I, can I get this movie made? So you're sitting there locked down. You have two-thirds of your film shot and you're sitting there for what six months a year How seven, long before you seven months which is crazy and in that seven months are you stewing and thinking you know what i gotta rewrite the whole thing i, I i'm gonna change this or are you thinking no i'm gonna do exactly what i was planning well to do? no you know in a great way i mean cooper had such a good energy he was like we're gonna look at this as a positive you can review all the footage and then when you get back you can adjust so we won't have to do reshoots or anything because and and it was true. I really got a sense of the tone, what was working, um, which actors were in the right direction, which ones needed adjustment, what see extra scene I wanted to throw in, what scene I was going to shoot that we wouldn't need. So I did get to do a lot of the sort of the filmmaking in that break, in a sense, in my head. So it was actually very, very productive. You know, no film can really take a seven month break to kind of consider mm-hmm. things you know film moves so fast so in a way uh, that was helpful i mean your movie is about a lot of things but it's definitely about a red state blue state divide and what people in those states think of each other and their misconceptions and then covid right just brought the temperature up for all of that and oh, intensified it i mean a hundred percent to use the movie's catchphrase i worried how young we were i worried you know 2015 i'm finishing the screenplay like oh this is actually a really good movie for the moment. Like, I hope the country doesn't heal so fast before the movie comes out. It'll seem irrelevant. And well, BJ, like, I've got good news. Oh my God. Yeah. That was not the problem. In fact, it just, but um, you know, it, it's not about any political specific moment, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. It's just really about this impossible feeling divide of, of how do you connect with people that are that are so different. You know, a friend of mine pointed out that the movie and and America, we when we say red state, blue state, it is it's not as accurate as the old fashioned city mouse, country mouse, you know, which is a very cute way to think of it, by the way, city mouse, country mouse. And that's the divide. You know, Texas is like 48% blue, right? Houston, Dallas, Austin. And um, and so in a way it, it was really that. And when I thought of it that it also was more charming. Frankly, yeah, and I mean, and you, you really not that our problems are charming, but those kids <laughs> they're, they're delightful. Are yeah, <laughs> and you know, the internet, right? Like, obviates yeah. so much of this stuff. Um, 
that if you're on TikTok, you know, you're looking at what people are doing all over the world. Everything seems a lot closer in a lot of ways, a lot more attainable mm-hmm. or um, seems more plausible that you could um, have the life that someone else leads. Um, it's not really realistic, but it makes it feel that way. That's interesting. Yeah, I remember hearing that that was a big factor in the Cold War, that people saw the wealth of other countries online. And now it's you see the fame and the clout and the the media influence of other people. I also think that, you know, there's an illusion about connection at play for us, even what we're doing right now. The the idea of a podcast where on the one hand, it, it's such an incredible, intimate glimpse into someone that you'd never hear from. They're in your in your yep. ears. You're hearing them at great length, talking often really from the heart uh, for over an hour. And and yet at the same time, it's just something on a menu for you. You click it whenever you want. You listen to whoever you want to say whatever you're already comfortable with. And so in a way, the more we feel we're connecting, the more it's an illusion. And it's definitely true on on social media in every way. And it's true with texting, which is also, you know, the movie opens in kind of this comic fashion about, you know, you text the names we put in how we label people on the phones and you you say 100%, you text LOL, you can you can walk into a misunderstanding. You're not connecting there either, but the more you do it, the more it feels like you are. So you've been talking a bit about how you got started in comedy and you're at Harvard Lampoon. What do you imagine if there's a BJ Novak in 2022 who's in high school and w- would like to do something in entertainment and or be funny, what do you think that person is doing, spending time trying to achieve? Wow. Yeah, are you making TikToks? Are you are you doing well, dank so much, memes? <laughs> um, it's so much. I don't. I I really don't know the answer because it's really about what hits you, and I don't know what hits kids like me. You know, I was talking to my friend Simon Rich. Do you know him? Great comedy, great comedy writer, about five years younger than I am. And I said, "Well, it's such a cliche." I saw Pulp Fiction in a movie theater and thought, "That's what I have to do." And he said, "Wow, my brother's exactly your age." That's exactly what happened to him. I saw The Simpsons and thought that's what I have to do. And I do think we're like the same type of kid, you know? So I don't know what that type of kid does now. It might be something that you and I aren't thinking about or isn't the most popular thing. Like I mentioned, you were in The Office. It was a hit show on NBC. My sense of it, it was a bigger show on Netflix. How did it feel to you being on in both those settings? It's certainly surreal. It's been by degrees, but I'm on a much bigger show now, you know, now that it's off the air and we're not making it anymore. You know, you imagine that it will be a gradual tapering off when you're on a hit show after the show ends. And instead, it's been the opposite. It's been every single year. It's a gradual increase in what a big How do you feel that? How does, how does that register? Is that people stopping you at the airport? People knowing who you are? Oh, a bunch of people had stuff for me to sign at the airport today on both sides, um, LAX and, and New York. Uh, just to give an example, every single where place I go, someone says, Ryan started the fire. I can't believe the balls of people to, to be sure they're right. That's the thing. I could see you. Peter and and be shy to say hey what's up you know I'm like maybe yeah. it's a guy who looks like him etc. The, these people see someone that they saw on a TV show ten years ago wearing a suit across the street in a random town and they yell Ryan started the fire and they're right which is amazing too but like I would dude if I ran into you I would kind of circle to make sure like I hope I'm not getting his name wrong yep, like, that's yep, the amazing yep. thing 
Yeah, is that the is that the right Jewish looking guy? I don't want to offend someone. Right? Why aren't they that way with me? I don't know. They're just like, have you, <laughs> am I the only Jew you've ever seen? Like, you got it right. I'm just amazed. I'd never have the balls to not be sure. Like, maybe I'm Zach Braff. Maybe you know. <laughs> like, I'm impressed. Is there like when you're on NBC and you're on the show? There's an apparatus around you that sort of helps you. I think in some degrees mediate with the public, and but then it's gone, and then it's on Netflix. Are you sort of left for yourself to sort of fend with fame and or attention? And I do not. Else? I do not remember any fame counselor no? at NBC. No, I, there was no one. There was no one uh, holding off the public from you. I don't even know what that would look like. No. Yeah. Okay. No. All right. I'm like, did they give Krasinski a guy? Like, I don't remember a guy around. <laughs> Can you feel the difference now that it's not on Netflix? Does it feel less popular or does it not matter? It's all just out. I thought, it w- I thought it would feel less popular. But the weird thing is, um, you know, when I ask teenagers who say, oh, we love The Office, I say, oh, do you watch it on Peacock? And more often I hear, no, we watch it on YouTube. And people mm-hmm. will watch... Um, They'll just like watch highlight reels of it yep. and consider that the show. It's such an interesting um, consumption thing. Or you know, I once I was at um, I was at a children's hospital and I was reading. I have a children's book and I was reading the book to the kids. And then they said, "There's a teenager who actually really wants to meet you. She's a big fan of you from The Office." So I visit her and I'm like, "What's your favorite Office?" She was so excited to meet me. And I said, "What's your favorite Office episode?" And she said, "Well, I really know you from the memes." You know what I mean? Like, and she meant it. Like yeah. I was, I was from, you know, oh, the you writing in the notepad meme and the you rolling your eyes meme. And she knows it from memes. Yeah. YouTube is wildly undercovered. Uh, I, st- I, I kind of know why, but totally I, st- agree. I still don't know why people aren't like people who do what I do for a living aren't paying more attention to it. Um, mm-hmm. And now that I've got two kids and like, it is their major sort of portal to the world. Uh-huh. Everything comes through there. Uh-huh. Um, we'll do a different show about that. So the standard lament for people who are on a successful, long-running TV show is, okay, now I'm this character. I'm always going to be this character. I can't do something else. I'm sure you were thinking about that during the run. Uh, no. I think, if anything, just to be true, truly sort of transparent, I guess my fear was just like, I hope I do other things. So it's just not like, Oh, remember him from the office, you know, but it wasn't so much. What if I'm typecast? Cause I also see myself more as a writer and you can always write your own things. And also Ryan was such a shapeshifter on the show. It's like I had was different every year in a sense. So that was fun, but um, no, I didn't worry about it. And to be honest, I don't think it's a bad thing to always be known for the most popular thing. I think James Gandolfini was my favorite actor ever. And I think that if I met him, actually I did meet him back in the day, but I wouldn't try to pretend I liked him most from this obscure thing. The Sopranos is a work of art and people still think Adam Sandler is from SNL in, in his DNA. Like it's like where you grew up. I grew up in the office. And if you see me as the guy from the office, no matter what I do, that's a gift. I think to everybody, I, I don't have that thing of, I'm more than that. I think great for truly for everyone. I think it's, it's special. It's like, I'm not from Boston anymore. It's where you're from. It's where you're from, you know? Like you said, you did do a book, and, and you were you were underselling because it was this giant hit book, the the book with with no pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Thank you. I want to make sure I get the title right. Everyone writes a kids book. Everyone thinks they can write a kids book. Did you have yeah. any sense that was going to be a giant, giant bestseller for I guess a year? 
a year, many years now. Many years, um, sorry. Come on. <laughs> no, but um, you know, I did only in the sense that anytime I start anything, I think, oh, this is gonna be the biggest thing ever. You know, I once saw Paul McCartney say, like, did you ever think you'd be the biggest band in the world? Like, yeah, of course. We were like kids in a band. Every kid thinks yeah. that. And yeah, every time I think of some idea, I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be huge. They're usually this will not. be a this will this will be a mediocre failure. Uh, yeah, no one goes. Yeah, I never think, oh, this will be a mediocre failure. Exactly. I'm like, this will be the this is gonna blow kids' minds, you know. And um and this one did. Um, but yeah, of course I wouldn't be you don't know the things that I thought would be the biggest TV show or screenplay or whatever that that didn't work. But everything I start, I start thinking it'll be big. But that that really has been I think I didn't know how meaningful that would be in my life that to write a kid's book that just the look in people's eyes when they come up to tell me about the kid's book, as opposed to the office, it's just different. It's like you cause laughter in my home with me and my kids. I mean, it's really, I, I, if someone took away everything from my career and said, you could save one thing from this sort of metaphorical fire. That's the one thing I would say for sure. You took a run at the the app business. You had a couple different apps. Yeah. Um, yep, yep. Those, those were not successful. Did you learn anything there? It's the yeah. list and Keo, I think, were the, the two. The list different. app and Keo is just another version of it. I think. Look, it's embarrassing to have like <laughs> failed to app on your resume when you're a Hollywood guy. I don't. I don't think that's embarrassing. No, I no, think. no. If you're if you're an app person, of course not. If you're a tech person, but in Hollywood, it's sort of like I don't know. It's like a failed restaurant or something, which I'm also on the way to doing, by the way. But uh, um, it's just the thing. <laughs> no, I actually, of course, I think it will be the biggest restaurant concept in the world. But because um, I'm at that stage. But um, look, I think having any failure outside your comfort zone, yeah, is humbling. Uh, on the other hand, I got to meet so many people in the startup world, the VC world, um, you know, in tech that I was really, really curious about and fascinated by. And I did learn a lot about, you know, how companies work, business models, how investments work. Um, and uh, and I'd love, and you know, Jason Blum thinks like that too. So I think it actually has made me a much better I don't know that I'll do something like that again, but um, it, it did make me a much better sort of producer mind, I think. Was that something where you said, I want to get into the app business. I have a great idea for an app. I'm going to go find people who will make it happen. Or did someone come to you and say, we have this cool idea and we need a famous person to help us get it off? No, no, it was the former. I thought, oh, this would be such a good app. And everyone took my call because I was, you know, from the office. Um, so I, yeah, so I found the people that way, but I just thought, oh, uh, this is a great idea for an app. I still think it's a great idea for an app. It's just, as I've also, you know, learned and I tell everyone in my business, when they say, I have a great idea for a movie, I have a great idea for a show. I think you, you probably do. That's not the limiting factor. The limiting factor is the talented people who have the ability to put their whole careers on the line to make it great. That's what's in short supply and, and it's easy to mess up. Um, Wait, explain that a little more. Is it is that is it you need to surround yourself with people who can make no, it, no, no, or I, there's just a limited number of people who can make something really good? The latter, the latter. And you know, if you have a great TV show idea, great. Like, um, you need a great showrunner, and all the great showrunners are either busy or they have their own ideas. And I think, um, not that people I worked with weren't great, but I I I wasn't the one running that, and I didn't realize, oh, you might have a really good idea, but you know, these companies, like, my God. But yeah, it, it was looking back, it it was an interesting and I'm. Thing, and I'm proud of myself for not limiting what I try to to what I already do. And if you fail, sometimes you do. 
I have another question I've been asking people for years, but it, the answer might be different now. The the streaming boom for a long time made it seem like anyone could get anything on air, and the streamers wanted more and more content. And I'd ask people, do you you know do you feel like you have to hurry up and make as much stuff as you can because the window's going to close? They all kind of shrug their shoulders. Do you feel like there's going to be a retrenchment now that Netflix is stumbling and everyone else is talking about pulling back a little bit, or some people are talking about pulling back a bit? I'm sure. But I will tell you, personally, it does not scare me. I think that some of those streamers and networks are taking too many casual bets on shows that have hurt television. And any person with any spark of originality or quirkiness, they say, how about this person as a show? How about that person as a show? And um, the shows suck uh, a lot. And if they were promising, often you take a talent that would be incredible as part of a show. And now they're not available to be on some dream team elsewhere. And you end up with a lot of cute shows that get well-reviewed, that no one actually cares about, that aren't funny, especially in comedy. There's so, it's not a golden age for comedy. It's a wasteland for comedy. Um, There's some great stuff, but not, I mean, my God, there are not only in the 90s, but like the 80s, the 70s, you can watch an episode of Three's Company and marvel at the level of acting and joke writing in a show that was considered completely mediocre in its day compared to these 100%, now I'm on a rant here, these 100% Rotten Tomatoes, you know, dramas that call themselves comedies that that aren't really funny and aren't going to be remembered in a few years. And so I do think that the bloat of these streamers is cynical and it comes from a place where they don't live and die on whether their shows are successful because they're a trillion dollar company that's doing it kind of on a lark and it's okay if they make a cool looking poster or get a couple um arty reviews and meanwhile they are buying out the people that have the actual talent to learn and combine forces and make something that an audience has to respond to so I think it has been a bad thing as an audience member, uh, as someone who likes good TV. I think it has been um, a glut of um, bad stuff, especially comedy. There's some amazing stuff, of course, but I think that streaming stuff has been bad news. And I think that if they contract, they're going to have to get serious and say, what is an actual breakthrough show that is funny and smart and different? And how do we put together those people to make them? Anyway, uh, that is my rant that I didn't know I was I had in me, but that's, that's how I that's feel. That's what I was hoping for. So thank you for the rant. I was I, you're the first person on the show to to praise Three's Company. So congrats. Uh, by the way, I just saw black. one episode. My brother and his fiance are like, "Hey, we watched Three's Company." His his uh, not fiance, his wife. Their family likes Three's Company. Uh, the parents are immigrants, and and that was just something they liked because it, it was easy to sort of absorb, and the whole family started liking it. And I watch it, and I'm like, people make fun of you know, shows like this, but this is, they are going for it and they are funny. And, um, and you do not. Cause usually the that. narrative in the seventies, when those shows were being made, there were three networks. So everyone watched one of the three things yeah. so they didn't have to be good. And that's why you got shitty shows. Yeah. So you don't usually hear people praising well, look, that as the golden age. Get, you did get shitty shows and you don't take, you did not get swings like Atlanta, for example. I mean, there's a lot of great things that you would never get then. Um, so, so yes, of course it's not, neither is perfect, but on the other side, like you don't, what, what did happen, like the office was one of the last examples, like 
the writing staff, all of the writers on that show have gone on to um to do great other things. And the actors, like there are like 12 actors on that show who could carry a show on their own. If that started now, that show never could have happened because Craig Robinson would have a show on day one. Mindy would have a show on day one. I would have something on IFC. You know, everyone would be <laughs> somewhere. And um, you'd never get to sort of battle it out in a writer's room or or something. I, I've never heard anyone say IFC with that disdain too. What's what's the restaurant that we should know about and go support so it doesn't go under? You know, it's actually fun. I recommend it. It's not really a restaurant right now. It's a pop-up. It's called Chain. It's Eat at Chain. It's a chain. This is, uh, yeah, I, I feel like this is I'm just trying to help so out. Where, just, where can yeah, I send no, dude, the, I the, the no, enormous audience? Hey, it's legitimately great, I think. You know, it's called Chain and it is a chain restaurant themed restaurant one of a kind we have a world-class chef tim hollingsworth who cooks his versions of chain classics we treat chain as an american cuisine as eat at chain is the instagram so there's a i'm assuming there's a blooming onion knockoff the, bus, the bustin onion knockoff okay. it's an elevation it's uh an homage where can i find it eat at chain at instagram uh, lists where all the drops okay. are Okay, good all right and what's next for you now that you have made your first movie. Uh, I'm writing the next movie. Yeah. Go for it. Don't spend more time talking about me. It's to me then. I like, I, t- I told you, I love, I love conversation like this because anything that keeps me from writing is, is great. I feel the same way about podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, BJ Novak. Thanks for talking. Thanks again to BJ. Thanks again to James. Thanks again to Travis, who's on the mend. We'd love to have you back, Travis and Jelani. We always love having you here, Jelani who produce and edit this show. Other people we love, our sponsors, they're great. And our audience, also great. So much love for everyone in the world. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me, and I will see you next week.